Welcome to Talk the Talk, calling all activists and allies alike. It's time to come together and demand the changes we need in this unjust world. I'm Jordan, a black male activist. And I'm Caitlin, a white female ally. And together we created Talk the Talk, a platform for speaking candidly and constructively on race. We will provide starting points for uncomfortable but meaningful conversations and introduce new knowledge and perspective. We will arm you with the tools necessary to combat racism anywhere and anytime you experience it. Right now is a once in a lifetime opportunity to create lasting change to the racial and social injustices in America. We challenge you to do your part and talk the talk. What is up, Caitlin? Hello, hello, hello. Just, I'm freaking out because I think my hair's turned green from the chlorine. Yeah, so we both kind of did a hair makeover <laughs> for this episode. Um, I went and got a haircut for those watching on the YouTube. You can check that fade. Shout out Trey Cuts, best barber in Philly. Caitlin went the opposite direction. She's letting her grow and dying it green by chlorine. But yeah, on accident, we, we may or may not be slightly panicked um, and had an existential crisis and also Pinterest searching on how to turn hair not green from chlorine. This is what happens. I'm so excited. I was like, I'm going to start swimming laps. Just call me Michael Phelps. And uh, here we are with green hair. <laughs> Slight, slight unexpected side effect. Um, well, I wish the best of luck with that. Let's Thank you. Now that we address the hair makeovers, we be Chad and hop <laughs> into the episode for this week. Oh, don't forget, sidebar. We oh. don't know all the answers and we do cuss. Do we? <laughs> I mean, like sometimes. Yeah, colorful, colorful language. Yeah, colorful language only sometimes to emphasize necessary points yeah yeah makes it a little more lively yeah the disclosure is out of the way that we don't know everything and we do swear um <laughs> let's tackle today's question what does 40 acres and a mule mean so we're going to talk all things reparations um so caitlin how did you how did what was the first time you heard the term 40 acres and a mule and what does that mean to you so i think I could have heard it like earlier in high school or like middle school, but I definitely, we definitely talked about it during um, our AP world or US history class, um, which again was a select number of students. I don't know what they taught it like across like US history in our high school. Um, but that's where I first heard about it. And it was literally probably like 10 minutes of a class period discussion when we were tackling the subject that is like civil war and reconstruction. Um, and it was literally addressed in such a way, like uh, for those who don't know, like AP classes, it's for high school students to take what are perceived to be like more college level courses. And if you take an exam at the end of the year and pass a certain with a certain score, like you can get college credit hours. So it's like a super great way to get started, like highly recommend, whatever, that's a different conversation. But um, it was mentioned as like a point that like, when you took these AP classes, you had to like brain dump facts for essays. And so it was like, here's something you should know about because it's a really good thing to brain dump like when you're talking about reconstruction. And it's basically the, the concept that Slavery was bad. The U.S. is really sorry. All newly freed slaves. We will give you land to like live your own life. Um, but it never happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So again, what about you? Our different experiences have led us to know about something that's the same, but learned about it in a very, very different way. Um, Think, I can't remember the exact first time that I heard the term 40 acres and a mule, but it was in almost like a comedic way, uh, just in like going through life. Like, yeah, still waiting on my 40 acres and a mule, or yeah, I never got my 40 acres and a mule, or if I had got my 40 acres and a mule, like things would be different. Right. Um, and that was just like, that was common in conversations, whether it be like family reunions or cookouts or just like chilling on the porch with family or friends like that was just something that constantly came up um and i remember that i think the first time i ever saw it written out was um during a spike lee film spike lee joint um spike lee's movie production company is called 40 acres and a mule so 
I actually think it was when I was watching um, She's Gotta Have It for the first time. Or oh, great. One of the two films. Um, definitely was probably too young to be watching them at the time. But <laughs> nonetheless, um, that was the first time I ever saw it written. So it wasn't like you. It wasn't in a textbook. Um, it was probably middle school age. Um, literally on Spike Lee's, <laughs> Spike Lee's uh, intro to one of his movies. So to me, I mean, it's just sadly another promise that was not kept to Black America is like one of the first thoughts that come to mind with, with me and what 40 Acres of Mule means. It was something that was offered up and was so close and then was just completely ripped away. And now we kind of have to discuss what it really was historically. Um, we're going to talk about the history of what 40 Acres of Mule means and how it came to be and what reparations are, why it's even a topic to discuss. And we'll get into what does it actually look like in real life? Like how would we put reparations into place? Should we put reparations into place? Um, and how does that actually get funded? Um, because it is a big, huge amount of money um, that would be required to do this. And we'll give you, obviously, a takeaway for today's episode. So, residential historian of Talk the Talk. <laughs> you know. I really probably should not be saying that. <laughs> I, I'm going to let you start off with this and I'll fill in where I see fit. So, cool, what, cool, cool. What, what's the history behind reparations? Okay. So, if you think back to episode time one. Out. Time out. Time out. Oh. I feel like there might be some people who don't exactly know what reparations are. So maybe I'll go ahead and get into that real quick and then I'll turn it right back over to you for the history class. So cool. reparations is basically just repairing. Like if you want to just break down the etymology of a word, reparations, very, very close to repair. Um, and what's being repaired through reparations is the financial damages that were done to slaved blacks in America. So the, the inability to be saw as a, seen as a person for so long from 1619 through the end of slavery in 1865, um, you were saw as property. So you could not build wealth. You could not acquire land. You had your family broken apart. So all of that was supposed to not necessarily be repaired completely, but it was supposed to lay, lay some groundwork to level the playing field for the people who were slaves who now had their recently acquired or had been granted their freedom for the first time. Okay? Yeah, and I would say, like, even broader than that, because it's, it's literally an I'm sorry. <laughs> like, it's helping those who have been wronged, by and large. A lot of times it's financial, um, but also part of it is literally you have to say you're sorry. Like writing a fat check is not, right. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of times what's being asked to be done. Like that's not, I mean, like you can't just be like, here's some money, like shush. Uh, it's not hush money. <laughs> uh, Stormy Daniels, what? Um, <laughs> I don't, sorry, we're not going to get close. <laughs> that was rude. Um, truth hurts. <laughs> but anyways, um, to Jordan's point, yes, like after the Civil War, um, we talked about it in our first episode, which was just the history of, I would say, I would say Black American history is probably how we should frame that first episode. Um, there, after the Civil War, there was a lot of talks of, hey, you know, we have the 13th Amendment now. Slavery is ending, like we're getting rid of that system. Um, a member from the union, William Sherman, had conversations with freed slaves or, you know, formal, formerly enslaved people to figure out, like, what can we do? Because I think that um, we talked a lot about in the first episode, like slavery, ending slavery was not the primary reason for the Civil War. Thankfully, that was an outcome of the Civil War. Um, but 
after these conversations, Sherman said to Lincoln, hey, listen, I've met with leaders of like the black community um, and the, how they arrived at 40 acres and a mule was, we wanna give land from South Carolina down to Florida uh, along the coastline to formerly enslaved people so that they can become independent um, and develop their own land and not rely on anyone other than themselves to make a living and achieve the American dream. And I want to interject real quick. Yeah. Because I want to give a shout out to Sherman as being like an OG, an OG, like the most original um, ally. Like he is an OG ally through and through because he didn't like decide for the black community what to give them, what to give for reparations. And he didn't like do this with a room full of white people that he like then took that message that a room full of white men made a decision on for what the black community should have. He involved 20 leaders from the black community. Some were free their whole lives. Some were not, some had like recently gotten their freedom. So it was 20 and of the 11, 11 had never been a slave. They were born free. And they had a lot of them, 10 of the 11 had lived in the Confederacy their entire lives. Um, and the others were, you know, recently freed because of the Emancipation Proclamation. But like for a white man to get together a group of 20 black community leaders to try and give a level playing field, like that is, that's, ally that's exactly what we want from all allies. Maybe not on that grand of a scale, but we don't, like, an ally should not be making decisions on behalf of the community they're uh, showing allyship for. So get the community that you, the underserved community that needs your assistance and your allyship or wants your allyship, or you want to be an ally too, get them involved. Don't make decisions for them. Thank you, Sherman, for setting the example. Back right. to the class. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's so right. That's the whole point of this podcast like that's the impetus of this is to give people information to have conversations to make an impact in their community um so sherman gets this idea um after having conversations and talks to lincoln president lincoln and lincoln's like yeah cool cool love this idea let's like flush it out um well lincoln got assassinated um, and his successor didn't move forward with the idea. And that's kind of where the buck stops. Um, and it wasn't necessarily that he just didn't move forward with it. He purposefully, I think there's mm -hmm. a difference. Like he purposely, he was a Confederate supporter. He was a Confederate empathizer. So when, Andrew, yes. when President Jackson came in, um, and replaced, you know, President Lincoln after his assassination, it wasn't so much that it got covered up by other initiatives that he was trying to put through. It was purposefully taking, not a part of his agenda. Right. Right, right, right. Um, so yeah, so Andrew, <laughs> Andrew Johnson's like, oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. I guess we're just literally not gonna do this. I said, good day. Like, we're like, we'll sweep it under the rug under Johnson's leadership. Like, it was just never brought up. Um, I think like one thing for like our own reflection to think about too is, which Jordan told me this, like I hadn't known about this, but comparing and contrasting 40 acres and a mule to Lincoln's original idea of sending formerly enslaved people back to Africa or the islands. Like, I don't know, Jordan, if you want to talk more about that, but as I was like writing the outline for this episode, I just kept thinking about I w I'm so curious to have known like what he thought about the idea of using American land versus like sending. Yeah, so the the acres that were set aside, there were 400 acres of land set aside along the coastline of Charleston, South Carolina. So from Charleston, South Carolina, and south to the St. Johns River in Florida, that was the area that was mapped out and set aside for um, these newly freed slaves and. Uh, other members of the black community to go inhabit and have as their own. So it's actually, it's pretty interesting. So 
again, I mentioned that Sherman went and had a conversation with leaders in the black community and the main leader, the main spokesperson from that group, um, most of them were, were pastors, reverends, whatever, um, of the Baptist and Methodist faith. Um, but the leader was Reverend Frazier and, um, in the conversations, Frazier kind of lined out three things that the black community wanted. One was to have uh, land that they could make their own. And they were in charge of it. They were in charge of everything. So it was their land. Um, the second was that it would be separate from white people because at that time they didn't see any possibility for there to be blacks and whites living together. And I mean, that goes back to what we talked about with Lincoln wanting to give the slaves once they were free, give them a new place to go because tensions were so high and, and difficult between the two communities that neither side at that time thought that they could live in, a, in like a safe mixing between the two, between the two cultures and the two races. Um, and then the third, um, was that they would have their own politics as well. So they wouldn't have to worry about, you know, any, any changes happening within their community that did, were not of their own. So they basically wanted to have their own economy, their own politics and their own space to have their own culture because they didn't think they would be able to have any of those things um, with white people um, being allowed in their in their space from Charleston, South Carolina, through Florida, uh, St. John's, St. Rivers, uh, in in Florida. So those were the three things that were wanted, um, and they actually were all agreed upon as well um, before Lincoln's assassination. Really, I feel like um, again, it just seems like par for the course. With like, unfortunately, with a lot of pieces of great legislation yeah. shit happens and things changes don't get made um so remember election day is less than 100 days away <laughs> register to vote because it matters yes. um so moving forward from 40 acres and a mule let's look more at like the history of like reparations so like jordan broke down what reparations are it's an apology for a wrongdoing and a lot of times that's associated with money to make things right um and if you're wondering like where have we seen reparations before um yes it's, hold on. it's super important not to think that this is like some pie in the sky utopic thing that's never happened before like there's there's a history right. of reparations being paid out for repairing the wrongs that one group did to another group. Right. Um, I think that reparations, like really, when we think about like reparation politics, like the turning point, and I'd say probably the beginning was the conclusion of World War II um, when we saw the Nuremberg trials, like the horrors that happened under the Nazi regime. Um, Six million Jews were murdered, like in cold blood. Um, and I, I think that was the first time that like the world had seen anything like that. Um, and like across the board, everyone was like, Germany, that's like fucked up. <laughs> You can't do that. You like you cannot do that. Um, so Germany at the um, at the time of West Germany and now Germany is one nation again um, has paid out like almost eighty nine billion dollars as of two thousand and twelve to Holocaust. Let me make sure people heard you correctly. It was eighty nine billion with a B. Yes, with a billion. B. Um, as of two thousand twelve to Holocaust survivors and to the state of Israel. Um, and formal apologies were made. Um, so like it can be done. And I think I, I would be concerned if someone didn't think that like that was a problem and there needed to be an apology for it. Um, that was, that was Germany. So 
that was Germany. on the other side of the pond. Um, <laughs> did something oh, horrible. All right, but again, that was that was in Germany. So okay, can this be done in America? It has been. It, uh, the uh, Japanese Americans that were kept in internment camps were paid out 1.6 billion dollars, not nearly the 89 billion that was paid out from Germany, but it's still been done here in the United States of America. When right, and $1.6 billion to Japanese. And like, if you don't know what we're talking about, so during World War II, the US entered World War II after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, which is in Hawaii. Um, after that happened, like, Calif it was across the nation, but like California, specifically Los Angeles, had a large number of like Japanese Americans living there. And they were put in internment camps, literally, I think a concentration camp, but there were no gas chambers. They had to, they lost their property, like their shops and businesses, like children's their families, shops. their lives. Everything yeah. was ripped away. Exactly. Because, and I'll also say like two thirds of the people, there were like 117,000 Japanese um, American people in these internment camps and two thirds of those people were born in America. So like horrible, horrible, horrible. Um, a complete and like encroachment on like <laughs> these American citizens rights. Um, the US said, okay, we messed up, we're sorry. Um, if you thought that like, that was just one time the US said sorry for something they made a mistake for, you are incorrect. <laughs> We've done it before um, with Native Americans or indigenous. Yeah, you see people. a theme of the United States just continuing to. I mean, I will say, like when I was writing this out, I wanted to keep this U.S. centric <laughs> and Western. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it's happened other places. Well, I mean, I hope. Well, mm, I hope not. I, I think no. But I mean, well, I mean, yeah, I feel like bad things have happened so I would hope there would be apologies for them and like we don't live in a utopian society where like bad things don't happen right <laughs> um so yes yeah, so, like I would me saying I hope so it sounds kind of weird to say but um also after the conclusion of World War II um Native Americans came out in like droves to support U.S. fighting against in both theaters um and one of the most successful things they did was um, translated codes, like espionage was like a really big thing during World War II and like people were trying to intercept messages. Um, because there were so many Native Americans from all different tribes that were coming and volunteering their like lives to help the US, they started using these native languages to send messages back and forth um, that couldn't be, the codes couldn't be cracked. Um, after this, in 1946, the Indian Claims Commission was created because there are 176 tribes that were talking about, like, listen, like, we're here in America. We fought for America. America took land from us um, and, and was terrible to our people. Like, we need to figure this out and come to some type of resolution. Um, and they ended up, the U.S. ended up, to say settling, I think, sounds too, like, formal and, like, something that takes place in court, which I don't know that this necessarily did, but there was a payout of roughly $1,000 per person for members of these 176 tribes. Um, and then in 2009, there was a formal apology from the U.S. federal government, but weirdly it was hidden in a defense bill, which I got that from the History Channel. <laughs> um, so I don't understand, like, why that would be hidden. I don't know that, like, that an apology needs an apology. It's just, again, it's just something that's being checked off a box. It's not, you know, it's, it's saying, all right, we, we did this. It was 50 years, 60 years later, but we did it. Right. We did it in this bill. <laughs> yeah. I like, that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't understand the optics of like, why, I don't know. I'm not that political, I guess, to understand like the why for that. But I would just think like, literally, let's just have a press conference and be like, sorry. Loud and proud. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, Jordan, do you want to take the next one? Talking yeah. about Hawaii? Every, like, I always think about this. Like, Hawaii is not close to the United States. 
I guess it's not place. No. If you go it's like a six or seven hour flight from LA. Exactly. It's still yeah. a seven hour flight, which is basically the equivalent to get to anywhere in Europe. So Yeah, from like New York to London. Like that's that flight, I think. Maybe less. The indigenous native people of Hawaii haven't been there for they were there for a very long time before it was discovered in the 1700s, the late 1700s by Europeans. Um, they had an entire kingdom of Hawaii. Like, anyone who's ever been to Hawaii, which I haven't, but I've seen pictures from friends who have been there. Again, it's super far, so I've not been yet. <laughs> um, yeah. But like, it's a beautiful place that does not fit. It does not look like anything else in the United States because for so long it was its own place, it was its own kingdom with its own people that created this kingdom. Um, and when the Europeans showed up, a lot of those 700,000 people that were already there were killed off. Not necessarily all because of violence, but a lot of it was just because they had not been exposed to the diseases that the Europeans who were coming to Hawaii were carrying. So their immune systems weren't built and like strong enough to deal with those particular diseases. And a lot of people died. And under the, it was the Hawaiian Homes Commission Act in 1920, um, if you could show that you were, of your heritage, you were half Hawaiian, then you could lease land for a dollar for 99 years. So that is like a phenomenal way to be able to recoup some wealth and build wealth for the first time, acquire land. And it was great, but it didn't really help unless you could prove your heritage. Like, even if you were on the land and your family, you know, your family was there in the early, in the late 1700s, but then there was a mixing of the races between the Hawaiians who were native to the island and the Europeans who came to the island. Unless you could physically prove that you were half Hawaiian, it didn't really do much for you. So I don't know. I don't know if you have something else you want to add on that one, Kay, but like, it was cool in theory, but I think this is a lesson that we need to learn that it's very important of how you put things from theory to being in practice. Yeah, I think the other thing with this too was that um, the land that was given, so like the Jordan and I talk about in like the first episode of like the economics of slavery and like that being the main driver um, for like the social injustice saw something similar in Hawaii with like the production of like sugar. Um, so there's all this land that was being taken. So within this land that was given, it wasn't necessarily the best land for <laughs> for development, um, which makes it tough. And then I think there are still wait lists for like people to get this land. Um, I, yeah. This is a hundred years ago that this was put into place. Yes, hundred years ago. So, multi, like, probably two generations have come and gone in that time frame, completely gone in the hundred yeah. years, and they're still they're still waiting. So, and if that's the case, then there's a strong chance that your descendants are not going to be able to prove that they are half white. Like that 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 chance of that happening gets higher every generation. So. Yeah. <sighs> And then, Kay, do you mind if I talk about the Tuskegee? No, I was going to let you. <laughs> Thank you. So, You're welcome. Oh, all right. So in 1973, we're, we're, we're still here in America, still talking American stuff. Um, the Tuskegee experiment, 600 black men were involuntarily added to a medical study. And we got to make a sound or something for these air quotes when we have them. Um, but it's a medical study that was done um, they were basically, they had syphilis and they were untreated for the disease. 600 black men. And there's a reason that all of them were black. Because in America, constantly and consistently, black bodies are not valued the way that other bodies are. So it was okay for these 600 black men who had syphilis to go untreated, but it wasn't safe to have a white man or an Asian man or any man who wasn't a black man be a part of this study. Um, and the only reason we found out about it was because the Associated Press like found out about the story and put an article out. Like that is, that's crazy that in 1973, this like all of our parents were alive. Like I have cousins that 
were alive. Like, 1973 is not 1920 or 1819 or 1619. This is, there's a lot of people who were alive in 1973 that are alive right now. Like, it's not, it's not far removed. And for the fact that the only reason we found out is from an Associated Press article that was published, like, we would have never known that the government was doing this. So once his article comes out, the government says, ah, shit, you caught us. You fucked up again. Um, so we're sorry. And we're going to cover the healthcare costs and the burial services. Not we're going to do anything right by the people who lived through this or the people who their family was affected by this. We're going to cover your healthcare costs and we're going to pay to put you in the ground. No, they, well, okay, I'm not, like, justifying, but it was, like, here's, we're gonna give $10 million, and then we'll cover healthcare costs for those who survive, and, sorry, so, like, I'm not, like, again, slow clap, like, I'm not saying, no, 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 it's good, but, like. But, honestly, like, at that point, like, what choice do you have? You don't really have any choice but to do that. Like, once you're caught by the Associated Press saying, like, hey, you did this and like you need to do something about it like there's it's not even that they answered the call to action they were put in a position that they had to come up with that money and cover the health care costs for the neglect that they put these black men under like it was not it wasn't like they like found out it like the u.s government found out about it, it was like i don't know i don't know it's just like again it's not enough to fix the wrong that was done no, I don't disagree. I, I don't disagree. I just want to be like, here is what exactly it was because there was more like monetary. Again, I'm not saying that like, oh, well, because they gave 10 million and covered the, the healthcare costs for right. these people, which like if syphilis, it can be treated with penicillin. Like penicillin existed in 1973. Like I could be wrong, but I'm almost positive it was. And regardless of whatever the treatment was at the time, which I'm fairly certain was penicillin. Right. Um, it's it's which, very painful. And it like syphilis can kill you. It yes. Which is right. why it says like healthcare and burial costs because people died from a curable disease. Yeah. And I think like this spurs like a larger conversation about like distrust between black people and medicine which i think that we can like we will have another episode on that yeah it's like that can be that's, not just, that's not just black man that's not just the tuskegee experiments that right time and yeah. time for a lot of stuff that happened in the 70s right so with all that being said clearly here and in other places in the world reparations have been given um for various circumstances so 400 years later, can we make reparations for slavery work in the states? Um, I mean, you live in Asheville, North Carolina. And Asheville is taking the steps to do right by the black citizens of Asheville because their ancestors were responsible for the wealth that was created in the state of North Carolina, in the United States as a country, and in the city of Asheville. So. Like Asheville's taking steps to create a reparations program. Um, they actually passed it. The, the council passed that, right? About two weeks ago? Um, yes. So Asheville um, had their council people, I think that would be like the gender neutral plural, um, vote on this. So the city of Asheville decided that systemic racism is a public health crisis um, and that was the determining factor and um how i think that probably they have like the start of these conversations and how they got to the end result which was some type of reparations um in the examples that we gave before like we talked about like the native uh, americans getting a thousand dollars or money being held in trusts um hawaiians getting land grants like there's a bunch of different ways that this reparations can go um, from like an individual check. Like if you filed your taxes and got like a $1,200 check from the government because of Corona, so something like that, or the Hawaii land grants, there's a bunch of different things it could look like. In Asheville, it's not, um, 
money is not going to be funneled to individual people, but money is going back into low income, predominantly black neighborhoods to address the, address the issues and the injustices that were created by slavery. Correct. While, and I, yeah, while slaves were creating the wealth for America, they were not benefiting from it. So this is to go back and start the process of repairing the injustices that had been done. Yeah, so money will go towards affordable housing, business, and home ownership and career opportunities. Um, basically, the objective is to grow generational wealth um, and close gaps in healthcare, which I said, I think the start of the conversations, I'm conjecturing, but was like the basis of understanding that systemic racism is a public health crisis. Um, so gaps in healthcare, education, employment, and pay, neighborhood safety, and fairness within criminal justice. Um, so it's not just one single prong fix. Um, and we kind of talked about this in our last episode when we were talking about what we think defunding the police means. It's taking some of that money from your police budgets and putting it back into your community in these exact ways. I don't, I'm not exactly sure where this money is going to be coming from. There is a movement here to defund police, like as in most towns, I would think, and cities. Um, at this moment, there is someone who wants to defund the police. Yeah. So I don't know that that's necessarily where this funding is coming from. Um, but it's very, very exciting. Uh, I will say, though, as proud as I am of the city of Asheville, Asheville's not the first city to do so. There, I think there's been obviously a lot of buzz, like what's happened in 2020. That's why we have this podcast. I think good for Asheville for rising to the occasion, but there was a city in Illinois who did it first, which was last year. Um, the city of Evanston, Illinois is going to tax legal cannabis to pay for reparations. Um, I don't have a ton more details again because I'm one bajillion percent bias on Asheville and it just happened. Um, but I do think that's a brilliant idea though. Like, oh, I was just about to say the same thing. It's so smart. Because this addresses another problem that was another um, injustice that was done to the black community, which was the war on drugs. The fact yes. that you can, you could and you can still be arrested for cannabis while cannabis is now a legal industry that is creating billion dollars worth of wealth for some individuals who have the capital up front to buy into that industry. But you still have people in jail for carrying small amounts of the same thing that is now legal to sell and even legal to carry and legal to smoke some places outside. Um, yeah. so Evanston, Illinois decided to tax the legal cannabis to fund their reparations programs. To me, it solves multiple problems all at once. So shout out Evanston, shout out Asheville. Now, what the heck do we do on like Asheville and towns like it and towns like Evanston can do this one by one in each state, but that's not gonna fix the entire problem in America. It needs to be a bigger, more sustainable and uh, scalable. It needs to be more scalable. So there are some people, really smart people, smarter than me, maybe not smarter than Caitlin, because, you know. She's no, not, smarter than me. She's our president <laughs> historian, so obviously she's pretty damn smart. But one of those people that comes to mind is Robert Smith, and he is the wealthiest black man in America. You might also hear have heard the name Robert Smith from when he paid off $34 million of student loan debt, the entirety of the student loan debt for the graduating class of Morehouse in 2019. That is like, I would have been sitting- I have like chills. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he was, Someone who's about to get into student loan debt. Yes, this man was giving the speech at this graduation and said that he was going to pay all of the students' student loan debts. Okay, this is a sidebar. I'm so sorry, but this is how my brain works. You watched The Office, correct? Of course. Okay, this is like everything that um, 
Mike's tots or whatever wanted to be. <laughs> remember when Michael Scott was like, uh, going to pay for these kids college? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? Make our dreams come true. Literally like this man did. So I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that is an incredible sidebar. We need to make sure we have at least one of those in an episode. Uh, but yes, that's exactly what happened. But instead of like it happening in a fictional TV show with someone who didn't make it happen. Who didn't make it happen. And also wanted to share that capital with the students who were going out. Instead of them going out and they had to find a job to figure out how they were going to pay back their student loans, which I'm telling you from experience is fucking horrible uh the, this whole graduating class gets to go out and not have to worry about that so they have the freedom to start a family or the financial freedom to buy a house or the financial freedom to start a business and grow their wealth immediately out of college as opposed to paying down their debt for going to college and then being able to do these other things so it just it put these students in an incredible uh position so if you've heard of Robert Smith, that's probably where you heard him from, or you might know him as the CEO of the investment firm uh, Vista Equity Partners, which is a, a large way that he acquired his wealth. Again, the wealthiest person, black person in the United States. Um, he has this plan, it's called the 2% solution. And it's pretty simple. The large banks and the large corporations that are billion, worth billions and trillions, <laughs> Amazon, Jeff Bezos. Oh, yeah. I saw this thing, another sidebar, on literally, like, I think he's Jeff Bezos's position to be, like, the world's first trillionaire or something, yeah. and someone literally broke down and said, cool, 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 cool. Literally, if he spent, if he has a trillion dollars, we could solve every single world crisis. Yeah. And he'd still have billions of dollars. Right. His, his ex-wife, his now estranged ex-wife is a billionaire as well. And he, he didn't blink when that, when that divorce happened and he had to pay that alimony. Like, didn't oh you? God. So, like, I wish I had the numbers in front of me, but I'm, I'm fairly certain he has, actually, no, for fact, he has more wealth, this one soon-to-be trillionaire, Jeff Bezos, has more wealth than all of the billionaires, all the black billionaires in the United States. He has more money than all of them, which it's 20. 20 people that are billionaires, some of the richest people on the planet, he has more wealth than all 20 of them combined, which is wild, wild. So for his company and other large companies like that to take 2% of their annual income to fund banking, telecom, technology, education, healthcare, infrastructure, that would go to benefit communities, communities that, minority communities that have not had opportunity. They've been starved of opportunity. They've been purposely starved of opportunity for centuries, not even decades. It's been centuries that this has been going on. So by taking 2%, you still have your other 98% to do your normal business function, to give to what other, other causes you were giving to before, 98% to pay for your employees, you, whatever your finances are, your marketing, whatever. You just take 2% over 10 years, and the amount of money that would be there would actually be able to go towards the reparation programs, like we said, that would go to the infrastructure of building up Black America, Brown America, all these other minority populations. And it would level that playing field again. It would make it possible for like what he did with the students at uh, Morehouse. It would give them a level playing field coming out of college. So coming out of the starting blocks, they would be able to own their own businesses. They would have the financial freedom to ditch the job that they're, that they're going to day in and day out just to make ends meet because they don't have a nest egg that other populations, mainly the white community has. If you look at uh, the median income for the, or the average income for a black household versus a white household, a black household is at $17,000 whereas a white household is at $170,000. So the financial freedom that's afforded to white families as opposed to black families is, it's very, very different. It's immensely different and it comes back to slavery. So by paying these reparations, having these reparations programs, 
it allows us to start righting the wrongs that were done through slavery, through racism, through systemic racism. Now we have to talk I think the thing that's super interesting about this 2% solution in contrast with like what we were talking about before is that uh, Robert Smith is calling for corporation. So like, this is like corporate responsibility. Whereas the other things that we talked about were things at like the federal level or, or like governmental level, right? I think it's super interesting. I think that anytime that there's a conversation about reparations now, I mean, everyone I think in Washington agrees that like something on a national level would be a clusterfuck. Yeah. Like, I, I mean. They can't agree on anything. They can't agree that we should wear masks for clothes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a whole okay I, I cannot even um so I think it's really interesting and I like at this point like I feel like making not making but like recommending that like these private companies do this is the only way that we can get it done I mean I know I was reading JP Morgan um did something they, like I'm not sure the history of like JP Morgan the company but I think that they did like five million in reparations um I, I who knows exactly what but it was it, tied to sorry about slavery type yeah. stuff yeah. <laughs> like I I wish I knew more about it but I remember like seeing it as I was like doing some research on stuff um sorry I didn't mean to derail you but I no it's, it's completely fine but it it, it kind of goes to the point of why he's calling for corporations to do this because we've been waiting for the government to step up and do it and also, I mean, our government doesn't have money like the u.s is in debt like what trillion dollars of, hundreds of trillion dollars of debt <laughs> but uh, it's a whole nother point that we could make about how yeah i mean but no i mean like it, it no, makes sense. Fair, but like they can pull money together like they were able to pull four different phases of economic um, relief funds that were each trillions of dollars for during the coronavirus pandemic. So if it was, you know, if it was a bipartisan thing to put reparations into place, it could be done by the government. But what Robert Smith is saying is like, we can't continue to wait on the government to do so. So let's try something different. Let's try to call on, on the large corporations that black dollars are continuously going into support. Like the power in the black community economically is very, very high and it's very coveted by these corporations. Right. So why not give, and it would actually be a financial benefit to these corporations to level the playing field for black people to be able to own businesses and have higher paying jobs and buy more homes and buy more goods and buy more services. Everyone would benefit from this as opposed to having a population where the average income or the average medium house wealth or household wealth is $17,000. That's not great. That's very bad. Right. So it calls on the black, and it has another piece in there about the black owned banks um, doing more banking business in black communities. So right now there's 4,700 US banks. 21 of those are black. Okay. So that's, a very small percentage and less than $5 billion in the total U.S. assets. So the U.S. has $20 trillion in banking assets. Less than $5 billion of those are in Black-owned banks. Can I ask a dumb question because I don't know a lot about banks? Yeah, go for it. When you say like Black-owned banks, when you say like, like owning a bank, does that mean like my local Wells Fargo down the block? Or is that like Wells Fargo in and of itself is one of those 4,700 banks. Yes. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Okay. So, like, Wells Fargo <laughs> is a white-owned bank or a right. majority-owned bank, whereas One United, a bank that I use for some of my funds, is a black-owned bank out of Massachusetts. I'm, like, shook that there are this many banks. Like, 
I, like I said, I don't know anything about banks. Uh, so once you break um, it down to like you include credit unions, um, and like. Oh, okay, okay, okay. It gets to it gets to be a, like state employees. Okay. Forty-seven hundred U.S. banks. Um, but what happens when there is not black-owned banks or banks in a certain community? It makes it difficult for these people to get capital. It makes it more difficult for them. It made it. It made it more difficult for them to get um, the business loans that were put into place for coronavirus. So a lot of the smaller black-owned businesses were kind of left in the dust or left waiting with employee, employees to, play, to pay, bills to cover, um, mm -hmm. without able to get the funding because there's not banks in their community. So they have alternative ways that they either store their money or they have to go across town to get to the bank, or they just don't have relationships that they would have with a black-owned bank if there were more black-owned banks that had the assets to loan out and to, to do business with these businesses. Um, so Robert Smith, throughout his 2% plan, it's been out there, he talks about it, you can see it all over the internet, seems very plausible, and it's not a huge commitment from any one company or, or asking the government for anything. It's, it's a collective, just like the original um, reparations were supposed to be. It was a collective, almost, people are gonna like, get turned off by this, it's almost like a socialist ideal where we are boosting the collective with the benefit of everyone being beneficial benefiting from this in the end. Um, and we kind of talked about like the United States specifically, um, but in the early, you know, 1619, when slaves were brought here for the first time, a lot of the people that were bringing them were European descent and they were coming from Europe. And that brings us to uh, the company uh, Lloyd's of London. Um, Caitlin, I don't know how familiar you are with Lloyd's of London. Um, to, to say like not would be general. <laughs> I, I mean, like I, I saw what you posted in our outline. <laughs> yeah, so Lloyd's of London, it's not an insurance company. It is a marketplace for people who sell insurance and people who purchase insurance. It is a company that's over across the pond in, uh, in England, English-based company, and it's a very old company. They've been doing what they do for 400 plus years. Um, it's a, like America's very young, the rest of the world is not. Um, so this company has been around in the insurance marketplace space since before 1619. But during the height of the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, people who were shipping their cargo, AKA their slaves, AKA their humans, um, from Africa to America, they could go through Lloyd's of London and basically have an insurance policy. So we talked before about how terrible and how dangerous and how many people died on the transatlantic slave passages uh, on those slave ships, we talked about how people died. That to the slave owners and the slave traders was a loss of cargo, a loss of property. So they insured it the same way that you would insure your car or your house or you know anything that is your property to insure. And Lloyd's, the Lloyds of London has come out and apologized and for their for their role in slavery. And they've also put out they plan to pay reparations. They haven't announced their reparations plan, but they have one come out and made a very public statement that's on their website that's all over the internet that says, we fucked up. We should not have done that. And there's people that are still benefiting from it. Um, and we need to do right by the people who have been set back by it. And the the company is like taking the steps. They plan to, like I said, to pay out reparations. Um, they haven't announced their full plan, but like it's in the works. So it's again, goes back to the Robert Smith's 2% solution. Like there's companies that acknowledge that they did wrong and they want to do right now. And it doesn't wipe out what Lloyd's of London did previously, but it takes a big step in the right direction. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that says a lot to me too, just because 
not that there are not racial tensions for black people in the UK because I'm I'm sure that there are. There's racism. Um, <laughs> but I but like for them to apologize be like we we messed up and like we can see what we did and it's happening thousands and thousands of miles away. Like I, I think that's really incredible and that's putting it minimally. Um to like step out and say like because they could they could so easily just be like Oh, that's not us. That's not our problem. It's all the way over there. Yeah. We have, like, if you want to talk about government again, like, that's what our government is saying. It was like, oh, it was a long time ago. It's okay. Again, I don't want to be political, but I, like, I'm just going to say, as I was doing my, like, research for this or whatever, I saw a quote from um, Mitch McConnell that was like, this happened 159 years ago when none of us were alive. Right. And I was just like, but Mitch, would you would scroll, you scroll, places, scroll. Mitch, would you would you trade places and like give up your your whiteness that you benefited from to get to where you are and like have the things you have? No, you wouldn't. <laughs> you wouldn't, Mitch. So that's why there needs to be a change and there needs to be a repairing of the damages that were done. Right. So I, I don't, think I, I don't know. Is this I don't you asked you asked me a really good question when we were getting ready for this. Is this a fix for systemic racism? And my truthful answer is there's no way to ever wipe out the atrocities that were done, and there's no way to ever fully fix the damages that were done through slavery and through the consistent and constant systemic racism in America. So no, it's not going to fix all of systemic racism but it's going to put us in a position where going forward, we can have a better future. We can have a more equitable and equal society. And it is a a massive step. Reparations would be a massive step if done correctly and implemented um, in a way that's beneficial for the community. And And it creation of the plan includes the community that needs to receive these reparations. I think, it would be a massive step in the right direction for combating systemic racism, putting an end to systemic racism going forward so that the future generations and even us who are still here now, like making these pushes and having these conversations and pushing our politicians to do right by the atrocities that have been done by America, even though again, Mitch McConnell, no one was alive right now who was a slave and no one, was a slave owner, there's been trickle-down effects that we talk about time in and time out on this show and are being brought to light on social media and different podcasts. Like People know that this would be beneficial to the Black community. We've seen it work in other places. We saw it work with Germany after the World War II. We've seen it work for the Japanese Americans that were in internment camps in World War II in the U.S. We've seen it, we've seen it work, and it's the right thing to do. And I personally do think that it's not going to fix everything, but it's going to be a massive relief and it's going to help out a lot of people. And that's just not even just the people that will directly help in those underserved communities that have been wronged. It's also going to help everyone because again, when you help a population that's as large as the black community, you're going to help the entire collective of America. I like have nothing to say because I agree. <laughs> well, hey, if you've got nothing to say, um, I think last yeah, week. Was that's my so week, rare. I think last week was my week um, to teach us what we didn't learn in class. So you're up this week, and you got a good one. You actually taught me something that I wasn't sure about. Um, so go ahead and run with this one. What did we not? What did we? Uh, what didn't we learn in class this week? Okay, well, a lot of us probably didn't learn about this because I'm going to assume that most of meh. Well, Jordan and I were not in class in 2019, so we wouldn't have learned this in class. But um, this week we're going to talk about what is HR 40. So HR 40 is um, 
was presented to the U.S. House of Representatives by member Sheila Jackson Lee, and she introduced this bill, which is formally titled the Commission to Study and Develop Reparation Proposals for the African American Act. So what is this bill? So this bill would establish this commission um, to examine slavery and discrimination in the colonies and the United States from 1619 to the present and recommend appropriate remedies. Along other requirements, the commission shall identify one, the role of the federal and state governments in supporting the institution of slavery, two, forms of discrimination in public and private sectors against freed slaves and their descendants, and three, lingering negative effects of slavery on living Amer African Americans and society. Um, so thank you, Representative Jackson Lee. Like this is important information that needs to be studied and understood um, so that we can move forward with some of the, the things that Jordan and I have talked about before. We saw when we talked about like Native Americans, they created a commission to go through and vest claims and complaints against the U.S. government by these indigenous peoples, and then they ended up getting reparations. This is a similar avenue and a path that we need to take and understand and get data for um, to make informed decisions on how potentially at a federal level, state level, and local level, we can remedy, not remedy is not the right word, um, I guess, make reparations for uh, America's original sin, which was slavery. So a little detail on this. So this was proposed in 2019 in January, and it really hasn't been touched since June of 2019. So if you go to congress.gov, you can go through and search um, legislation and you can look up and understand and get a summary of what HR 40 is, action, so where it's at in the process. So I'm on the website right now. So it was introduced uh, to the House in 2019 in January, and it was basically put into a subcommittee, and that's where it currently sits. Um, this is a really great resource if you ever want to look at your pieces of legislation. You can go through and see like a little tracker. So how something becomes a law, it's introduced, it goes through committee reviews, reviews in the House, it's passed by the House, it's passed to, by the Senate to the President, and then a bill can become a law. Um, so it can be an arduous process, but nevertheless, this is something that is super important and I didn't know a ton about. Um, so that's what we learned. I'm going to just parlay this into the action of the week because they are literally tied perfect. together. Too tied together, it's perfect. They're, they're, yes, so when you're on congress.gov and you, and you look up um, HR 40, you can go through and there's like a little tab. I'm actually, well, this is like great for podcasting, but we put this on YouTube, so. Um, I wanted to like, well, I don't know if I can share my, why can't I share my screen? Oh, you're not the boss. I'm not the boss. Not the meeting host. <laughs> Isn't podcasting great? We're doing it live, people. We'll, we'll throw it up okay. on social media. We'll show yeah, you. Yeah, never mind. We're going to keep going. Okay. I thought I knew how to Zoom and I got really confused. <laughs> so on, uh, on congress.gov, you can go through and see the co-sponsors of a bill which will basically show you all of the representatives who said, yes, like, I think, love this idea, let's move forward with it. And you can search all the co-sponsors. So anyone who co-signed, co-sponsored the bill will show up on a specific tab. Yes, so you can go through and click on your state, and then you can go through and see if your representative supported um, HR 40, and if not, you can go and do a quick Google search to see who your representative is based on where you live, get their contact information from their website, and ask them to support HR 40. Um, we're currently in a holding pattern, like I said, with this bill. I'm, I'm hoping that in light of everything that's happened thus far in 2020, there will be continued yeah, traction. Is there a fire for this bill to get at least yeah. the Senate? I don't know what 
horrible event has to happen for it too. So let's all step up, reach out to our uh, House of Representatives um, and have them, if they're not already co-signers, a co-sponsor to this bill, have them step up, be co-sponsors. They're there to represent you. They're there to represent us. So push them and hold them responsible to do so. So that's why it's so important not to just vote for the, the president of the United States. We need to be also voting for, you know, the people that are rec representing us in the state, uh, city, local, um, and the federal government. Right. I mean, think about like the council people in Asheville. If people didn't show up for voting, I mean, your grassroots local elections matter. Um, with all that being said, please register to vote. <laughs> Less than 100 days. It's coming out. Less than 100 days and vote by mail. You need to have your, you need to be registered to vote and you need to, if you're voting by mail, you need to submit your vote and mail it back in by like the 25th of October to guarantee time for your ballot to be counted for November 3rd. All right. I think that's, I think that's it. I think we're done. Yeah. Um, I just want to say thanks for listening. Get out there, fight racism wherever you, racism wherever you see it, and talk the talk. Peace, y'all. See ya.